let's start. It's good to see you guys. Um, just looking ahead, we should be able to finish Orthodox. No, we will finish Orthodoxy next week, and we will start the Gospel readings. We'll do Matthew and um, John, and end on Book of Revelations. I'm I've thought about coming back and rereading Hamlet or Lear with you guys. Um, I'm doing it with Francis and I mean at uh, Elizabeth Ann Seaton and and am amazed again every time I go over a work it just grows on me um, but um, but for sure the Gospels and Revelation and that should bring us to an end um, <laughs> part of me does not want to give you guys up but or, or at least let me rephrase that part of me doesn't want to give some of you guys up <laughs> oh dear <laughs> <laughs> Bar you're the last one that should take that personally. Bar I was going to say, Barbara, I think you're pretty safe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. And Tracy, I think Mark and I are the ones that are in trouble. With you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mark, tell him to speak for himself. This guy's out of hand tonight. Nope. <laughs> hey, if I'm going to be in trouble, if I'm going to be in the principal's office, I'm not going to be there alone. There you go. I cannot tell you this. I, and I've said this to both of you, the, the class w just would not be this class without either one of you, both of you, just so. Any, any prayer, wait, so we will, we will finish up Chesterton next week. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a curve at you guys in a minute about Chesterton. I don't know how it's going to go, but we'll see. But we'll do, um, we'll do the last chapter of Orthodoxy. I'm glad we've done it together. It's, um, I'm once again amazed I haven't done it forever and I, reading it just reminds me of how what an extraordinary man um, he was um i think that's it so any just, uh, any sorry just to let you know we have uh family pretty much the week of the 22nd so we won't be able to join you guys but we'll get caught up the week the next time okay yeah. 20, that's not next week that's a f couple that's weeks away yeah, it's two weeks from tonight. Yeah, I think what I'll do, Fred, is um, check with you all, and it just we might decide to put it off for a week, and um, and rather than do without you, because um, it's it's always good to have you here. So, but I'll ask. We'll check next week. Um, any prayer requests for tonight? I just have um, evidently since. The train is coming into Grapevine. There are more and more homeless people who are winding up in our area. Wow. Or at least that's what Cecilia said. Last week there was a homeless man sitting at the back of our church, and another woman and I were talking to him, and it's overwhelming how, how lost... Um, this particular person was, and I guess that's true of everybody who's homeless. Yeah. Um, and so I just would like to kind of remember there are just so many. And this man, when I talked to him, he it sounded to me like he did not think there was one person in the world who cared anything about where he was or what he was doing or if he lived or died. And um, that's not, that's not, that's not okay. Yeah. It's so hard. Um, 
I'm going to give you part of, I mean, one of Suzanne's and my response to this. I mean, homeless people are clever people too. I mean, they can, they can work, they can work people, you know, and it's a, it's a tough situation to be in because you, you, you can't be insensitive, but, um, well, and you know, I'm pretty soft-hearted. I mean, if anybody is gonna, <laughs> if it, it's gonna be me, I'm gonna be the one that takes it all to heart. Yeah, I know so, that. I know that. You next time this comes up, you call me before you do anything. <laughs> well, well, I didn't do anything, and the guardians were there, and they took over. Um, but even if these people are clever and take advantage, I still think. Yeah. Yeah. Prayers. We, I'll come to the prayers. I don't want to miss an opening here. Um, Suzanne and I occasionally serve in the food kitchen in Dallas. We haven't done it for a long time, but but it was something we did just to help out with the poor. What we did, I think maybe last Christmas. I'm not sure when, but we we bought I don't know fifty dollars, hundred dollars worth of um, Whataburger um, coupons. And mm -hmm. put them in boxes, those little, like Christmas yeah, boxes. boxes. Yeah, gift card boxes. And we have them in our car so that whenever we see a home, because I'd rather do that than give homeless money because I don't know what they do with it. And sometimes I'm wary that they're going to spend it on the wrong thing. Sure. So we've got coupons in our, food coupons in our car ready to give the homeless. If you... Um, if we're there again and you see this person and recognize him, let us know and we'll grab one of those and or a couple of them and you know and give them to him. Whataburger is just several blocks away from church, so he can have a meal. Um, any other prayers? I wondered how Francis's brother is. Well, he actually is doing a little bit better. It seems like his kids are kind of rallying around him and they're getting him to go to the doctor. So he's doing better, a little bit better. Now, of course, I mean, the cancer we'll see, but at least he's doing better. And like I said, his, his kids are really, you know, helping him. So thank you for asking about yep. him. But, yep. Yeah. Right. yep, yep, yep. So prayers were answered that he... Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning, your words to us. Um, for all the efforts um, of um, you in our church to draw us closer to you, to ask hard things of us, um, um, recently you've... Um, wasn't a scolding, but a pretty serious reminder to the disciples that um, the woman gave all she had in her last couple of pennies um, when other people were too concerned about importance or status or they didn't give things because they were more concerned about their image of themselves or their reputation or their wealth or comfort and this woman came in and gave all she had and was left with nothing and Father Sojin's words were one of the things we should ask ourselves when we give is what we're left with. How much do we still have? What are we, you know, what are we giving up? Um, it was an image of you giving everything and asking us to do the same. So strengthen us, please, in our efforts. 
to not let the things of this world have the hold that they do on us. They didn't do this on their own. They only have this power because we give it to them. So strengthen us in our, particularly those of us who are older. Um, I think Suzanne and I, Barbara, are, are in that class. The rest of you are too young. <laughs> but, um, but it's a time to prepare, to get ready. The greater part of our life is behind us and we're looking to the short part of it. So for those of us who are moving on and getting closer, strengthen us in our efforts to get ready to leave this world. Um, in that spirit, I ask for a special blessing on Bob. Um, lots of people were worried about him. Lots of people would have said he was foolish. <laughs> There's a couple of women who wanted to make the trip with him. I'm not even going to go into that, but if you can imagine this, um, Bob is fighting off some women, I think, where he is, and it's... Um, he made this trip alone, a great risk to himself. He's, he's not going to hear a lot of people saying no. He's very independent. It's one of the things I admire about him. Surround him with your protection, please. Let no harm come to him while he's here. Um, let his heart be at ease, at peace, um, particularly visiting old friends and coming to Mass. Um, he misses Mass terribly. Um, it's here where his love is, um, his memories of Carol. Stay with him. They are heavy memories. Um, um, help him to know joy in being back here. Um, to carry with whatever sorrows he carries at this point in his life. Um, let him know your presence and let him feel your presence in his friends, those of us who care about him. We offer these prayer. I offer um, one last prayer for a group. And for the homeless? Um, for the, for the homeless um, whose numbers may be increasing. It doesn't surprise me that the immigrants coming into our country and the situation that's presenting to us that and and not even that I mean the effects of losing jobs and um, the the problems with our economy and things that are probably going to increase add to the numbers of homeless in our culture today help us to look beyond ourselves to to give up some of the things that we have in order to look out for others strengthen us in our awareness of, of that and our willingness to do something about it. And I ask for a special blessing on this group in the work that we do together. Let it make a difference in our lives. One of the gifts of Chester to us is that he's making clear to us a ground of our faith. We should be able to make a defense of our faith. Help us to do that, to, to take the things we've learned and make them living make them active in our lives, particularly where it involves risk. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, I'm going to keep um, with Elliot's four quartets. We'll do the, um, the second section of um, Burt Norton to keep it going. And I'm going to try to keep my comments down. Remember in the opening section, Eliot's 
presenting us with what I think is a universal problem that too many of us, too many of us live in the past or a future that's not yet, but we don't live in the present. Um, and it's only in the present that time can be redeemed because it's in that present that we meet God in His present, His ongoing present. That was the truth from Boethius. Um, remember the opening lines? Um, time present and time past are both perhaps present and time future. Time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. How many of us live saying, if only, if I had done, or, you know, whatever form the regret takes so that we're living in the past or in a future not yet um, instead of now. And he shifts from that mode of speculation, of thinking, to descriptions of the garden. Um, a cloud comes between the sun and suddenly the vision that the couple had is lost and the birds speak up again because it was the birds that called him into the garden. It was the singing of the birds. And remember, that's an image of poetry. The birds have always been prophetic. They, they live in the clouds. They, they bring divine things to human. That's been true since Homer, Robert Frost, every major, Shakespeare, all, almost all major poets have have looked at birds as an image of poetry. The bird comes and then it says, Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been point to one in which is always present. The second section Remember, there's five parts to each quartet, so the analog is always music. He's paint playing instruments, and each part not only has a different mode of music, it's a, it's, a, it's a different perspective on the theme of that particular quartet. So we have to use our own minds to try to put those different voices together to see the whole they form. Okay. This is the second part of Burnt Morton. And hold on to this and ask yourself, what's the relevance? How does this relate to the opening section, the first section? Section two. Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. The trilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars, appeasing long-forgotten wars. The dance along the artery, the circulation of the lymph, are figured in the drift of stars, Ascend to summer in the tree. We move above the moving tree in light upon the figured leaf, and here upon the sodden floor below, the boarhound and the boar pursue their pattern as before, but reconciled among the stars. There's all this activity going on on earth, but there's this mirror between what seems to be random stuff, the fixed nature of the blood that there are things that are determined in our nature. The blood is always there. We have to have it to live. And these constellations in the heaven, which are fixed, as if we are given a sense of a pattern um, that's immovable, that's unchanging in the heavens to help us understand the things that seem unfixed, constantly changing, subject to change here on earth. 
that's the opening to the second section, and there's a section within it, a shift, and it begins here. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light, still and moving, Erkbung, it means, ex I think it's exaltation in German, without motion, concentration, without elimination, both the new world and the old made explicit, understood in the completion of its partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror, yet the enchainment of past and future, woven in the weakness of the changing body, protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the draughty church, drafty church at Smokefall, be remembered. Involved with time past, and future only through time is time conquered. He's presenting these series of thoughts, but at the heart of them too, the movement of each one of them comes to a dark moment. Remember in the first part he said, go, 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 said the bird, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And here he says, um, in the completion of its partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror, Yet the enchainment of past and future, woven in the weakness of the changing body, protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. And he goes on. We'll do part three um, next week. Okay. Um, let's do Chesterton. Um, very quickly, um, Looking back to Eternal Revolution, the, the chapter we just finished, Chesterton makes a number of points, and he's really clear on them. There are three of them. One of them is watchful. One of them is that a fixed ideal is necessary. The, the title to the chapter is The Eternal Revolution. And he takes on a number of modern isms again, positions that m most moderns take. It's the way they live their lives and shows something wrong with them. Um, the most, I think the most important position that he takes in that chapter is um, there has to be something eternal and unchanging. One of the arguments, remember, is there has to be a fixed point. If you're, if you're going on a trip, if you don't have a fixed def destination, you'll never get there. You'll always find yourself going off. So if your ideal keeps changing, you'll just get lost. I'll, I'll put this another way. It's been put really well. By, by the way, this is a good, it's a good book and one worth getting. 
Dorothy Sayers wrote a book called Creed and Chaos, and I think she's taking her argument off of Chesterton. She's, um, she admired Chesterton, Creed and Chaos. The argument that he's making is basically this. If everything in the universe is chaotic, if there's no constancy, no laws, then there's no meaning to things. There's no romance. There can be no romance. There can be no, no, no adventure. For there to be any real romance or adventure in life, there has to be something fixed. Our vows have to mean something. Um, our, our losses have to mean something. Our choices have to mean something. We keep changing our choices or the meaning or the ground of our choices. They'll never mean anything. So unless there's a fixed rule, something against which to measure our actions, we'll never be able to see clearly what we do or the meaning of them. That's just a basic line of argument through that whole chapter. Um, and if that's true of us, the ultimate ground of it is the kingdom. That's why he calls it the eternal revolution. If we're really truly living our lives, we should be measuring our lives against Christ and an unchanging condition in heaven. He made it clear to hear. He did everything he could to flesh it out. I mean, I, the fundamentalist position is one that, I mean, I, I mean, all of us have to respect, but it's so simplistic in so many ways. There are hundreds of things Christ asked of us. And one of our struggles is to try to hold them all together and make sense of them in what we do with our lives. But if there's nothing fixed, we'll have no means of guiding ourselves, no means of understanding the significance of our actions. So the Eternal Revolution, the title of that book, has meaning insofar as it implies there is a heaven in which all things are fixed. We know it. Christ said, in me you see the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. You know. Um, so if that's true, then every day, I mean the implication of that chapter is every day should be a revolution. We should be changing, bringing ourselves into accord with that fixed thing. Now, lots of people don't believe that they need to change. Lots of people don't believe in heaven. But the argument Chesterton's making is there's, there's this eternal revolution. It helps us to answer all of those positions that people take that are at odds with that position. I think that's the meaning of, a, of eternal revelation, revolution. Um, let me stop. Is that a, any questions about that? Tonight he's going to talk about the romance of orthodoxy. It's just a follow-up. It's, it's an outgrowth of what he's... It's a continuation of the argument he's been making, but it's, it's going to take a slightly different perspective here. But I really want to get to this. But, but Is there any question about the eternal revolution or the significance of that title? Why it's important? What he's saying is if any, anybody who takes the Apostles' Creed seriously would be undergoing constant changes. Basically, that we would be learning things, changing, growing. Um, he doesn't put it in these terms, but if you're working with the Holy Spirit, you presume that you're growing in Him, growing in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He's bringing Christ to us, the work of the sacraments that should always be changing, always getting closer and closer to Him, closer and closer to each other, 
I'm trusting that that means more for those of you who are a little bit older. There aren't, there aren't any young people in our, I'm really sorry there aren't young people in this group, but I'm, a, I'm trusting that all of you feel when you look back that, um, that you're not the person who you were 20 years ago. <coughs> that you don't see the world the same way, you don't feel about it, you don't act the same. You carry things now that you didn't carry then. It changes the spirit you bring to things, you're thinking on things. So what the value, part of the value of what Chesterton does is that he just identifies these things in such a down-to-earth way. Um, no questions? Okay, here's the curve. Here's the curve for you guys. Um, he's going to do in this current chapter what he's been doing all along. Um, <laughs> and it, it's, it's really interesting to me that he's taking up the same issues. He, he just keeps shifting his posi position. Um, but he's taking up the same issues. I want to go over a number of the um, positions, worldly positions, ide ideologies, worldly positions, whatever you want to call them, principles, doctrines, um, of the world that Chesterton has taken up over the course of the book so far. Okay? Um, and I want to see how well we can answer them. His argument is these are the, the defining positions of most modern people. And he's very clear that they're the result of, I'm going to read a passage tonight that, that speaks to that clearly. They're the result of the 19th century materialisms coming out of the sciences in the 19th century. People were so taken by, um, by the influence of the sciences that they, it led to all these various positions that people take. He's been taking all of them one by one and trying to show um, its flaws. In, our, in the chapter we're going to look at tonight, the romance of orthodoxy, he's going to say that every one of these positions presents itself as being liberal, as free. And, and, and by the way, it doesn't have the meaning that it does for us today, although he, it's really interesting because he makes the distinction between liberalism as a political stance and liberalism as a philosophic stance in the world. It's a, it's a distinction we should make ourselves. But, he, but he's looking at all of them and showing that even though they present themselves as being liberal and um, approached with the belief that they help man become free, every one of them has as its aim a freedom from the church. And every one of them, the, the last thing that anybody can say about any one of them is that they're liberal or, they're, or that they're helping man achieve a freedom. He's quite clear in that. So he makes clear what's wrong with each one of them and why they're not liberal, why they're not liberating or freeing. There's an anti-humanist spirit behind every one of them. He's going to take up four of them tonight. Monism, pantheism, necessity, and Arianism. We're going to look at all four tonight. Those are the four that he takes up. He's already, he's already tackled every one of them. It came under a different name, and he was looking at it from a different perspective, but he's tackled all of them. Okay, So those are the ones we'll look at tonight. Monism, pantheism, necessity, Arianism. What's wrong with those four positions? 
he finds them as as um, sort of characterizing the general mindsets of the modern mind. It's the world that we've grown up in. Before we get to those four, I want to go back and I want to look at his answer to materialism, evolution, theory of progress, pragmatism, and the worship of the will. Those five positions he has taken up over and over again. Now here's my challenge to all of us, and I'm including me and Suzanne in this same. Um, can we give a defense of our faith and answer every one of these positions? Chesterton saying they dominate the modern mind. These are the positions that people take. If we were to if we were to come into the company of somebody who took any of these positions, could we raise questions to show that person there's something wrong with the position he's taking? Can we give a defense of our faith? That's the test tonight. Okay, so let's see how well we do. Francis, what's wrong with materialism? Don't look at that guy. Do not look at that guy next to you. What's matter with, what's his argument? What's the problem? It's one of the main, in fact, he's going to pick it up again at the beginning of this chapter. It's going to be the very first argument he takes, but we've heard it in a number of different ways in preceding chapters. But What's wrong with materialism? I haven't read it all. So. <laughs> I don't care. What's what's the matter with you've got a faith to defend? What's the matter with materialism? I, you know, this is really funny. I, I feel like I'm back in school, and there's I'm this great. There, <laughs> there, there's this great. <laughs> there's this grace. If you all of you, if you remember back that far, there's this grace period in the first couple of weeks of school where you can where you can withdraw from a class. I you know, withdraw. I know. I could just see the students already withdrawing. Uh, uh, well, materialism. I mean, that's pretty. Uh, it, yeah. I mean, you you buy something. You it, you know you break. It breaks. You the more material possessions you have, the more you want. I mean, it it doesn't satisfy anything. You think you're gonna you know you buy this big car. And it's going to be the answer to all, or a big house, and it's going to be the answer to all, and it's not. And it, you know, it's not the the answer. I mean, it it's not doesn't guarantee happiness. Yeah. With what you you purchase, so uh, or buy, or what you have around you, and everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think as you get older, I think you realize that more and more because when you're young you think oh gosh you know if I have this really right. fancy car right. or right. new car or new right. clothes it'll bring me uh, popularity or all these things right. and you see it in teenagers all the time right. that they've right. got to have the right clothes they've got to have the right things and right. material yeah right yeah good <laughs> Does that mean you're going to stay in the class? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody want to jump in on this before we... I want to take each one of these things and spend a few minutes. What else can we say about materialism? You know, he, Chester makes clear that he's not just talking about materialism in 
the sense in which Francis spoke, and I thought she did a really good job. I mean, that, that goes so directly to the issue. He's also talking about materialism as a, as a philosophic view of life. Um, but any, anybody else on, um, on, Tracy, you look like you're thinking your way into this. Well, if I, um, the philosophic position that he takes, isn't it materialism? He explains it. It's like, um, everything's grounded in matter. And so I guess the question would be, what about the things you can't explain or see or touch? Or what about the things that you intuit that are, that don't involve your senses? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anybody else on that? I mean, just to stay with Tracy's comment. Can you elaborate any, Tracy, on that or expand on it at all? What's the problem between mind and matter as Chesterton presents it? Which comes first and why? If you're looking at matter as an explanation of everything, what's the problem with it as he, as he presents it? I don't remember. No notes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Use your notes anytime. I'm kidding. Come on. I know. Uh, I don't remember. Fred, did you want to jump in on this? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I guess to me, it's you can't explain everything with just matter. It's like, how do you explain why you love someone or why you think that work of art is beautiful or, you know, why a sunset or a sunrise moves you so deeply? There are things that you just can't explain, you know, with, with, with matter or science or, or whatever. And so, I mean, to me, that's if you were trying to to defend our faith, if you will, I mean, those would be the questions you would ask, right? You know, it's like, what, you know, what, then how do you explain, you know, what moves you emotionally uh, in in that context? Yeah. He, he, Go ahead, Tracy or any, you Mark. Have here, you Go. have here, we're, like I have notes about reason and self-evident stuff. And um, it says uh, that our reason leads us to ask about things like that ultimately leads to a truth. Ask us why. Ask why. So why is grass green? Oh, that's from, yeah, the Elfland. Yeah, the position that he's taking is that any sensible philosophy would have to begin with mind, that there was something there before matter to bring it into being, because matter doesn't explain itself. If you've got a dead arm or a leg or a rock, why doesn't it move? Or how do other pieces of matter or things made out of matter, where do they come from, how do they get here? Matter doesn't explain itself. Um, there are other causes and... Um, um, and the, the great objection, he's gonna, we're just going to meet it here in this chapter, the great objection that he has to that position, the really great object, objection is that people who are what he calls monists, who, who believe that there's only one principle for life and that principle is matter, that's what monism is, it's one principle, is that they rule out miracles. 
you know, that they rule out all those things that matter can't explain. So instead of being freeing, that belief actually cripples us, imprisons us, it confines us, it reduces our world. Because there are all those other sorts of things, some of, some of them Fred just mentioned, that can't be explained in terms of matter. And to rule those out is to horribly shrink the human person, um, take away a lot of what you all are talking about. Um, anybody else on matter before we turn from it? <coughs> I wish I, I wish I were in and whatever Francis is saying to Fred right now, because both of them had this big grin on their face. But anybody else? What about evolution? Major, major philosophy of our time. There are lots of people um, who, who hold this as a way of life. But and I think I said this before. By the way, Chesterton's Everlasting Man. It's his other really great book. It's the book that brought C.S. Lewis into the church. Everlasting Man is probably the most convincing, sustained argument against evolution that I've ever read. It's a pretty amazing work. It's it's a long work. It's um, it's 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 a remarkable work. But he he deals with it here. What's wrong with evolution? What what's his what questions? What problems is he raising concerning evolution? Um, That, that there has to be an artist. Why? Who <laughs> says? Defend that. I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> You're scaring me right now, <laughs> Tracy. Barbara, any thoughts on evolution? What would, if, if somebody took a position on evolution, what kinds of questions would you raise for that person? What would you ask? That, that would go to his assumptions. Even if we all started with an amoeba or the smallest possible cell, somebody had to make that cell. And so I don't have a problem with how we got to be how we are. I just know that there's a creator who started it all. Yeah. So some people think that we went from what to what to what. Other people think we started out as man and woman. I, I don't have a problem with either way. People can believe what they want to believe. I just know that the beginning of it all is with a creator. Yeah. Anybody else? What's what's the difficulty? What's what sort of problems does the does the idea, the belief in evolution, make for us? Doc, you going to jump in? What what problem? If somebody took a position and said everything can be explained by evolution, that all things are. I mean, it's a it's a worldview theory. I mean, it, it's an effort to explain all things in creation. What would you? Well, where's the starting point? Where is it? Evolutionists don't account for it. I mean, they say Big Bang. So where did the material for the Big Bang come? Yeah. From? Doc is is 
um, with Barbara on this that, you know, what, I mean, once again, what happens at the Big Bang is a chance occurrence. Um, and Aristotle's argument is every contingent event is the cause of some other contingent event. There has to be something that was not contingent um, or, or, the, or the series goes on indefinitely and, and none, of, none of the explanations serve because they're all chance things producing other chance things. Um, there's a couple of problems. Um, Fred, go ahead. Or I'm sorry, I thought your light I, was on. I fully support the, the, the Big Bang approach because if you reverse engineer the universe and many of the physicists have done that, they still say they get to a point where they can't explain how the expansion started because of the huge, unimaginable multiples of the kind of energy that the sun puts out that would would cause that event to occur. So I just throw it out out there. I, I think Barbara's right on in that sense. The other the other aspect of that for me is sentience. You know, you look at animals and they do what they do by instinct. Something in innately and in, inherent in what they do. But when you look at man and 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 sentience, that that self awareness of your presence in the universe and what's going on around you, you can't you can't explain that with evolution. Because it is you it is uniquely different. Yeah. Yeah, what some people call the missing link. Um, Mark, I would I mean sorry, Fred, I was um, I'm my mind may be going here. I if you're if I'm understanding your word, sentience as I understand it means the um, the faculty of feeling that animals animals have sentience, they can feel. Human beings have sentience too, but we also have rational powers. Am I mistaken? Am I because I may have um, but that's my well, understanding I, of sentience. You know, I, I guess you know if you're if you're a uh, Star Trek fan, they often talked about the difference in the species that they find and the difference or the finding difference in what what is is humanoid, if you will, is sentience that 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 awareness, that self awareness of your place in the universe. Yeah, you know, like if you take a squirrel, for instance, running around, you know finding nuts and burying them. I mean, that, that's, that animal doesn't have self-awareness of their place in the great scheme right, of right, right. the, you know, the, the food chain, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and only, only man has that. And that's, you know, all, all you know, the, the real scientists have looked at that and said, you can't get there through evolution. You can't evolve to something that is uniquely specific to a, right. a singular species. Right. I'm going to have to look this up after our time because my my recollection is that sentience means the capacity to feel, and man has that, and so does animals. What distinguishes man is he has a consciousness and the capacity to say "I." He can reflect on himself in ways that animals can't. But I'm I'm going to have to look that up. Um, anybody else? Mark, you have any thoughts on evolution? Or Sorry, Barbara, go ahead. Oh, well, I just had the dictionary here. Um, 
you're right. Sentience is um, that feels having the power of perception by the senses. Right. Characterized by sensation. Yep. Yeah. Thanks. We have a scholar. We have a scholar with us. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Um, anybody else on evolution before we leave it? Let me just throw this out. One of the one of the difficulties with evolution, if things are always changing, and we don't we don't have a principle other than um, um, what's that? Uh, oh, what's that? It's not the survival of the fittest, but what's the principle? Um, by which one thing learns to adapt to as a culture and so survive that that uh, I'm, I'm losing it but anyway let, let me because I, I want to I want to go on one of the difficulties with evolution if things are always changing and we don't know what the principle of the change is we can never know anything because no sooner are they one thing than they can be another that is the problem with evolution is that it takes away the notion of form because form is, is specific, or species specific. Each thing has a different form. Humans do. I mean, I'd, I wouldn't use the word sentience, I'd, but, you know, but the, the form of an animal is different from the form of a man in the, in the way that um, Fred and we are des um, describing it. If things are always evolving, um, then we don't know what we are, who we are, because we, in another century, we could be something different. Um, so we can't know things, because even if we think we do, some change is occurring that we don't fully see, and we don't understand the forces of it. If, these, if we're a product of forces over which we have no control, we have no way of understanding them. We can make some provisional attempts to understand them, but by, by nature of the theory itself, we can't go very far with that. So, evolution... That's, ev evolution. that's assuming you're supposed to know something in the first place. Right, I mean, that's... A, you're and, right. And who said you're here to know it? You know. Yeah, you right, know. right. Mother, you know, my mother always told me, it's not, you know, you don't have to get it. Well, <laughs> right? yeah, except evolution is people who... Well, people who hold evolution and people who oppose them are going to both make a claim resting on knowledge. They know something or they wouldn't take the position they take. The point that I want to make right now is there's a difficulty with evolution because if things are constantly changing and they have no notion of form, then we can't really know things. Um, so, um, theory of progress. What's the difficulty with that? If somebody, if somebody were to take the position that we're always progressing would you have any questions for that person? Because lots of people, lots of people, I think, I may be wrong on this, there's a lot of people who, today who believe in the theory of the perfectibility of man, that we're evolving. And there are lots of people who think we began in a barbarous, primitive state, and we're advancing. And they're all moving in the directions of some perfection that we can attain as humans. It's like an outgrowth or an extension of the theory of evolution. What's wrong with that? What's the difficulty with this theory of progress or the, or, or the ideal of the perfectibility of man, that man eventually can be perfected? What's the problem?
Well, I've got a problem with what you're saying, Bob, because I, in my lifetime I have never met anybody who thinks they can become a perfect human being. You can always get better at things, right? But I've never met anybody who has this idea of perfection. Besides the psychological, you try to be a perfectionist and get something, you know, there's, that's, that's not what I think this is. Yeah. But, I mean, so, I mean, I've never even heard of anybody in my lifetime that, th that holds that view. Yeah, I, I have lots, lots of people. And by yeah, the way, it's sort of... some it's, perfect ideal for humanity? Yeah, it's sort of... I mean, besides, like, if you think it's a Hitler or somebody, okay, that's a whole different story, but, I mean... But I, I just, I, I don't understand, I, I've never heard, never met, never heard, never read, never seen anybody who holds the view that you're espousing right now. Listen, Do I'm, not I'm not, hold on, you got, I'm not espousing a view, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying you hold what I'm What I'm just, doing is presenting views that are, have been current and popular and, and, and assumed. By the way, it's sort of buried in your comment, if you go back to your comment, because you, you said, these are not my words, yours, you said... We can always get better. Mm -hmm. There were lots of people who would extrapolate from that. If we're always getting better, we're always going towards something. That, I mean, people do, whether you whether you want to believe it or not. Some people do. By the way, and let me just take off from that. There are lots of people who who whose position towards Christianity is negative. They believe that as Christians, because we believe in original sin, that there's something imperfect about us that we're anachronistic, we belong to an old age. The assumption is we can perfect ourselves. The political, the political doctrine, the political ideal that's the re realization of that belief is socialism. If we have a socialistic country, we can get rid of crimes, we can be the perfect people. We're if, if we apply all these scientific methods, we will produce this kind of a world. We won't have crimes. So, for, for instance, there are people today who say who believe that criminals are not responsible. This is a position Chesterton is going to take on. There are some people who believe that um, criminals are not responsible for what they're doing. They're products of a social system who produced them. So when they get these criminals in jail, there are judges who will turn them loose because they believe that way. Well, there are people that believe that, but they're idiots. Well, whether they're idiots or... Mark, right now, instead of name-calling... I'm trying to ask Stop you. I'm doing a statement. Listen, Mark, be still for a minute. I'm asking you to give a defense of of the position that our church takes when you encounter people who take these positions. What would you do? What argument would you present? Not name call. Not call them idiots. Um, because these, because lots of these people are educated. They think of themselves as being educated. They don't think that they're idiots. They think they're smart. If you were to stand, our church says this, if you were to stand with a person like this, what would your response be if you were to try to engage this person in a discussion? What kind of questions would you ask to raise questions for this person? If somebody were taking up the position of a theory of progress, that we're all progressing, that's implied in the theory of evolution, even if people don't press it. We moved away from a more primitive, barbaric existence to one that's better and better. And if you look at our, some people are going to make this argument, if you look at our society, you can see evidence of it. If we get rid of some of these outdated notions, these superstitions that religious people have, and we follow the tenets of science, we'll produce a better world. The political form of that is socialism, 
olives are equal, olives are better, there's no reasons for killing each other, all violence, we're, all violence will go away because we're better people. My question to you guys is, what, would, what questions would you raise, what positions would you take to raise questions for a person taking that stance? Chesterton's been answering all of these. In my experience, Bob, with people like that, facts and questions don't matter. They're going to believe what they're going to believe until it hits them right in the forehead. And even then, they're still not going to believe it. Yeah. And I've met people like this. Not, diehard we, socialists or diehard we, communists. That, we, all, we all have. You know, you just you throw up your hands. <coughs> there is no arguing with that, you know. Well, okay, okay. Let, me, let me give evidence of another position, Mark, and it's certainly, I would hope that you would think that I would be one to take this. The evidence on a philosophic side is Socrates. Socrates was finally put to death. Thomas More for doing the same thing. We have examples in our history, in our church, or the tradition running through our church, that were called to the world, to take Christ to the world, to engage it precisely on those things. I have no doubt about the truth of what you're saying, Mark, but I, I, I myself couldn't bring to it the attitude that you are. We're called to do this. Socrates did. He's an example. St. Thomas did the same thing, by the way. St. Thomas did the same thing in his time. He took a position that was absolutely um, um, contradictory to what a lot of people thought at the same time. Bonaventure was his great opponent. Christ did the same thing. Christ didn't say to the Jews, you're stupid, I'm not going to talk with you anymore. He never failed to engage them with things, giving parables that upset them, and, but he did. And he thought of his, enough of his disciples, even when, they were, <laughs> even when they weren't very receptive, he got angry at them a number of times, to engage them, to try to teach them, to try to help them see when they didn't see very well. So part of the position of the church is we are asked to take this to the world, knowing that a lot of the world is going to hate us. But that's not a reason for not doing something. That's a greater reason for taking care in what we do. Fred, go ahead. Theory, we're on the theory of progress. Yeah, I, I guess to me, you can't define something as progress unless it's relative to something. And, you know, if you, if you take that progressiveness all the way to socialism, then my, my question to them would be, in what way is socialism better than even what we have today, much yeah, less what we might ultimately progress to, assuming right. we have some measure by which we're going to judge that progress progression. Because yes. if yes. there are plenty of examples out there of socialist societies to point to and say, well, would you rather pay a little more for your bread today because the supply chain is messed up? Or would you rather be in a world where you can't find bread? Or would you, you rather, could, yeah, would you, you rather go through, sorry, sorry. you can go, and, and it's not like you're making this stuff up. There are, I mean, take Venezuela, for example. There are just many examples out there of people who thought socialism was going to be better and that it was progressive and then found out 
that it's really not. I mean, we've had people who've lived that experience who are trying today to explain to people that what these folks are telling you is just not true. Yeah. And I've lived it. Yep. Yep. Um, I just want to throw in there as one of the elements, not just a breadline, but the role of freedom for human beings in any political regime. So it's not just, you know, I mean, Christ said, we don't live by bread alone. All the temptations went to this, that this whole question of freedom and whether how important it is for us and for the regime that we live in. And if you live in a socialistic country and there's no room for dissent or um, or opposition because the government controls everything, what happens when you reach a point where um, you feel something important to our human nature isn't being answered and you want to resist it? I mean, the government, there's no place. Um, but I want to go back to the the first words that you spoke because they went right to the principle. I mean, you hit it on the you hit it on the head. The most important thing in a theory of progress is the ideal towards which you're moving. That's Chesterton's argument. And Fred gave the example: if you think socialism's the end, then he would raise these questions. But what if it's another end? The ideal of progress implies some point at which you're aiming. So the real question is: what is that ideal towards? What are you progressing? Can you defend it? If all of you will just remember for a minute Boethius' argument, he said, remember, all men desire happiness. All, and go, he said, God is good. Evil's, evil's the opposite of good. Lots of men divide, desire evil things. Can you make clear what those evil things are and distinguish them from the good? Because if you can't, you won't get it. You you just won't be able to engage in that discussion or argument. So the ideal of progress always implies an ideal, an end towards which you're moving. And Fred was right on. If, you, you, if, if socialism happens to be that, then, then you've got to deal with that. I mean, I thought his questions were right on. Well, what about socialism makes you think that this is a better good for everybody? Then you're in another discussion. But the point is, you, you've, got to, you've got to identify that ideal, whatever it is. Pragmatism. What's wrong with pragmatism as a way of life? <clears throat> the pragmatic, your, your concern always from first to last will be with the pragmatical aspect of things. <clears throat> What's Chesterton's answer to that? What's your answer to somebody who says, that's as much as we can do, there's no more? Because there are lots of people who take that position. was actually called a philosophy 50 years ago. I mean, there, there were proponents of it. Every one of these positions that I'm identifying have had proponents. Serious writers, they, they exercise a serious influence in culture. People read these things and they're embedded in our culture. Our culture is full of these people holding these beliefs. It's why I want to take a minute with them here. Tracy, go ahead. Sorry. These questions make me feel like I haven't read a word of Chesterton. I have no idea. You know, just reread him. Pick up the book. I mean, no, no, honestly. My, my, I'm saying this very seriously. I don't think, I think Chesterton writes in a way that 12th graders could understand the language. But if you deal with the concepts that he's dealing with, it's like reading Dante. You know, you know you're in the presence of somebody who's, whose depth of thinking is greater than other people. 
And I, I just, I hope you take this seriously, Tracy, that I, and I, I'm trusting that, you know, because you are a good enough reader that you'll know that and go back and reread him because he gets, he gets clear with every rereading like any, like anybody good. Fred, did you have your, did, did you want to say something? Well, I, I want to give everybody else a chance to talk before I do, but yeah, I do have a... Go ahead. Go on, Fred. Nobody's, nobody's jumping here. Well, I, I, think, I think the problem with pragmatism, and I, I think this is Chesterton's point, is that um, you're going to eventually degrade in that scenario because at some point you say, I can't get any better. And you're going to become stationary in that process. And as we, we talked, I think the last class we talked about the painted pole, if you don't keep it painted, you know, one of these days it's not going to be a painted pole anymore. And I think the, the problem that the pragmatist runs into is that you get to the point where, you know, we're, we've, we've arrived and we've done what we intended to do. There's no reason to do anything else. You know, the one thing that you you know about that is that you are ultimately going to decline. That if if you don't continue to try to improve eternally, um, yeah. you are eventually going to fall behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're picking actually several lines of arguments now that we've been touching on. Anybody else on pragmatism, Barbara? What's wrong with limiting yourself to a pragmatic view of the world? My concept of pragmatism is pretty simplistic, so I don't know that I can answer that question. Um, I think of pragmatic people as people who are constantly using uh, practical solutions to get to some utopian answer. And um, the problem with constantly doing things is that we're ignoring what's inside our soul our spirit and as I said that's I'm not sure that has anything to do with, <laughs> with what we're studying but that's what came to mind when we talk about pragmatism I, I think you're right on and I would just add that it's not just the inside it's the outside the problem I think you're right on the problem with pragmatism is that, that the, um, I think the example that Chesterton uses is you can have a mechanic fixing a car, you know, doing, having all the tools and being able, but if he doesn't understand the theory or the ideal of a car, there will be things he can't do. Let me take this to another level because I think it will become clear because I think all of us have had negative experiences with this. You can go to a, doc a doctor, by the way, I think most, I think most, everything there is to learn about medicine coming out of the 19th century is mechanistic. If you go to an eye doctor, he's got a theory of the eye, and this is the eye. It's like a thing, a machine. If your vision is here, you do this. If your vision is here, you do that. So it's very mechanical. It's, it's predictable. That's, that's of the nature of the sciences. But we know the human body is very complicated. And what happens between the chemistry and the interaction of the organs and a soul for us 
makes for complications that very often doctors don't understand very well. And that's why you can go to two doctors and get two radically different readings of something. So you can go, you can go to a car mechanic and ask him to do something. Um, let's say you take a, to a general car dealer and the guy doesn't know anything about BMWs or you know, whatever other class of car you have. If he doesn't understand the workings of that car, he won't be able to practically do what you hope he would do. So all pragmatic work, whether it's with a doctor or a car mechanic, it just doesn't matter, implies some ideal of some idea, some theoretical construct that we draw on to accomplish the practical things we attempt to accomplish. So pragmatism by itself implies something more. Chesterton would say metaphysics or a larger view of the world. So I don't think it's just, for me, Barb, it's not just inside, it's a way of looking at the external world too, whether you're a doctor looking at somebody's body or you're a mechanic looking at a car. Um, you want somebody who really knows what he's doing because he understands the nature of that thing. If he doesn't understand the nature of that thing, he's not going to be able to do a very good practical job, whether it's whether it's building a wall or repairing a wall in your kitchen or you know, other more dealing with other more sophisticated sorts of things. Okay, last one. The Worship of the Will. Nietzsche's most famous book is The Will to Power. He elevates the will above everything and makes it a principle of life. And there are lots of academics, lots of educated people today who follow Nietzsche. Chesterton takes answers Nietzsche repeatedly in this book. What's wrong with worshiping the will? What would Boethius say? What would you guys say? If you, if you ran into somebody who made the will the, the guiding principle of his life, what kinds of questions would you raise in a discussion with that person? And presuming all of you can take on the role of being Socrates, that you can engage, you can engage in a discussion and and charitably and courteously and and raise certain questions that that you you might leave the person like Socrates left so many people hating him, but it wasn't because he pointed fingers or called. It's just that he raised all these questions that left people wondering whether they really knew what they claimed to know. What's, what's the difficulty with making the will the guiding principle of your life? I, I think that's, I, by the way, I think that's one of the founding principles of our American polity. The, the freedom of the will. The, 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 if you, if a, the, the basis of a woman's right to choose what to do with her body rests on, nobody can say what I'm going to do with my will. If I don't want to have this thing in me, my will should be protected, and the, and the courts will protect her will. If a young 13-year-old comes up and wants to have an abortion, she does not have to go to her parents to get a, you know, an approval. She can go. One of the principles of our American polity today is the, is the freedom of the human will. Nobody can impose something. Chesterton's saying there's something wrong with that. What's wrong with making the will the guiding principle of everything we do? What's the difficulty with that? What's the it's private for everybody. 
Sorry, wait, hold on. Can you, did, can you hear Doc? Can you, hear, can you speak up, Doc? It's private for everybody. Go ahead. Can, everybody's will is can their own. Can you hear Doc? I don't think they can hear you. Can you speak up? Everybody's will is their own will. So, if your will is your guiding principle and my will is my guiding principle and we butt heads, what then? So what, what would be needed in place of that? Something larger than your personal will. Like? God? Yeah, or... This was fundamental, Boethius' argument. I mean, did you all hear Suzanne? Yeah. So if, so if two people butt heads on their will, and by the think about all the relationships in which one person is... I mean, what's at issue is both people wanting to have their will. What's needed to help there? Because if they're left to their private wills, there may be no way to reconcile what they're doing. What's wrong with making the will the arbiter of everything in our lives? The biggest problem is somebody's will is going to be more than yours. Stronger. Yeah. 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 And that to me is a regression to primitive society. Right, the guy with the biggest army decides to take over. He's going to take over. I mean, that to me is not what it would. Any of the other ones would be called progressive civilization. Right? Yeah. Right. Well, and you just you lose sight of the greater good. You know, you look at well, just abortion. You know, the child can't speak for their will. Right. Right. There's a greater good there that gets completely lost. Yeah. Barbara, go ahead. Did you, did you? We, we still need in everything, everything around us, in all of our decisions, there has to be an objective standard. If yeah. not, then we will be butting heads and we won't have anything to work toward. Right, right. That was fundamental to Boethius's argument. God is all good, evil is its opposition. Um, the, the real question is, when you set out to be happy and you work and you give your will to what you're doing, you're giving your will to some greater good. If you can't do it, it shows a weakness in your will. Some, some people will do evil because they don't have the strength to do good. I mean, that was a fundamental principle in this whole line of thinking. What else about the exalting the will, making the will the arbiter of everything in our lives? Well, we're basically all chasing our appetites at that point, right? You know, can you imagine a world where nobody cares about anything about except chasing after their appetites? Yeah. I mean, pretty soon nobody's going to be happy. Yeah, right, right. The other thing is, if you, if you, the definition of love is willing the good of the other person, right? So if you, in order to do that, you have to give up your own will so that you can... Or give it, no, no, give it to the good of the other person. Well, yeah, give it, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is a singular in the sense that uh, whatever that good is, you will yep, it. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah one, one of Chesterton's comments on the will early on in the book was um, that um, he was arguing against Nietzsche, really. He said every, and he's actually arguing against Buddhism because every... Buddhism faults the individual will and whatever he wants because ultimately in Buddhism you're going towards this collective self in the next life where you lose your will and you become part of 
this large world where you lose your identity and your own will. He said, every time you make a choice to do something, whatever it is, one thing, you eliminate all other choices. They're gone. So the serious question is, when you will something, is it, the, is it for the good? Can you defend that good? That's, that was a major point in, Bo- in the structure of Boethius' argument. What is the good? What is it towards which, to which we move to give our wills? Remember, because the opening question is, um, how does, why does God allow evil? Why does he allow good people to prosper, to succeed in what they give their wills to, and other people to be defeated? Because remember, Boethius is a good man. He's in jail and he's going to be executed, just like Socrates or Christ. <clears throat> Can we make a choice of our will without knowing what the good is, the nature of things? And if love is, if love, I mean, for anybody who takes that seriously, if love is willing the good of another, can we say that honestly recognizing what the good of another is? Let's say the person we love has an alcoholic problem. That means we cannot, you just can't go around being nice or respectable. That's not going to answer the problem. Sometimes doing the good of another is going to be, it's going to put a person in a really difficult situation. So in every one of these positions that, that are defining positions for a lot of people today, Chesterton has taken them on, okay? And he's done it in his way. I mean, I, I'm reducing, I'm, I, I'm actually not liking what I'm doing right now because I'm taking this wonderful book that's full of humor and a depth of wisdom that's rare and, you know, picking out these things. But let me stop here. I want to go to the four things that he picks up in this last this chapter that we're dealing with tonight. But let me let me let me stop. <coughs> um, any questions about any of these positions that we've taken a look at so far? There, there. It's a sort of amazing thing. This is this. He's on his way to the Catholic Church, and the basis of this thinking, he he finds. That, that everything he believes in was already implied in the Athanasius Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed. Um, so he's speaking as a journalist from, from the point of view of the world. He's not in the church yet. What he's doing is defending these positions because he finds himself going up against these people in the world who are defending these positions, writing books about them, influencing culture, shaping culture, so the masses of people believe these, take these positions. They hold the beliefs behind them. Chesterton has been taking every one of them up. So, he, I mean, it's a extraordinary thing what he's done. He's, in a sense, he's, he's helped us to see what our, what our responsibility is in the world, the, the sort of struggle we've got dealing with these problems. He didn't bury them, he didn't cover them up didn't go nuts on them Um, in a very humorous charitable way um, he put them and he did it he did this arguing against people he genuinely respected he he had so much respect for George Bernard Shaw and if you go through the book he has almost nothing good to say about I mean every one of his positions is is critical of Shaw but he never he never is unkind I mean he, he, he he takes a position arguing, as a matter of fact, against people 
that he really cares about. Shaw's not going to change his position. I don't think he changed the position in his life. Um, but that didn't keep Chesterton from trying to show how Shaw was wrong. And um, Wonderful example to us, I think. No, any, let's, here, let's go then. Come on. Turn to the last chapter. In the, in the very beginning of the Romance of Orthodoxy, he says... Um, that one. <laughs> this is Chesterton. God, he's so amazing. One of the problems in the modern world. Th- th- by the way, this is another way of saying what he said in the opening chapters. In the opening chapters, remember the maniac. And what was madness? Um, what was the maniac and and the suicide of thought? In both of those opening chapters, he he said that the the greater majority of people holding chairs in philosophies were mad. He didn't say that with any anger, he just he just said it humorously the way he does. Here he's saying in Romance of Orthodoxy that the modern world is characterized by a lack of thinking, that people do not think. They let their workplace do the thinking for them. They can't escape the mindset of the world they're in. That mindset does their thinking for them. Is that clear? So he says, it's customary to complain of the bustle and the strenuousness of our epic, but in truth, the chief mark of our epic is a profound laziness and fatigue. And the fact is, the real laziness is the cause of the apparent bustle. He's saying that people in our world have just become lazy. Take one external care. The streets are noisy with taxicabs and motor cars, but this is not due to human activity, but to human repose. <laughs> Nobody's walking. They're not using their... You know, we have, have what, what, what shocks me today is not only do we, you know, have people do things for us, now we've got robots in the house, you know, doing things for us. Or machines, you'll, you'll say to a machine, Aphrodite, whatever her name is, turn the radio on Alexa. and the radio goes on. Alexa. Or turn the TV on and the television goes on. Or, God. I think there are robots in England who perform sexual acts. You know, I mean, so we've created a mechanical world in which we have less and less to do. But what's the effect of that on us as human beings? It goes to Fred's comment earlier. I mean, you stagnate, you, you decline, you go backwards. And he goes from that example in the streets to the way they use language. He says... If you say the social, this is in the opening page of the Romance of Orthodoxy. If um, if you say the social utility, the social utility of the indeterminate sentence is recognized by all criminologists as a part of our soci- sociological evolution towards more humane and scientific view of punishment. You can go on talking like that for hours with hardly a movement of the gray matter inside your skull. <laughs> I love that sentence because people aren't thinking; they're just they. Machines, tapes, tapes of words already spoken are being repeated in their heads. They cannot think themselves out of the world that does their thinking for them. But if you begin, I wish Jones to go to jail and Brown to say when Jones shall come out, you will discover with a thrill of horror you are obliged to think. The long words are not the hard words, it's the short words that are hard. There's much more metaphysical subtlety in the word damn 
then in the word degeneration. <laughs> his, his, his ability to parody, to make fun of things, to me is just rare. He's making the point that we, we don't think very well in our world and that very often because of the way language is used on our world, we get caught in that language and that system of language does the thinking for us. That it's harder and harder for us to do that. And that means it's harder and harder for us to make choices on our own because in some sense those choices are already being made for us by the world we're in. He says in the next page, a confusion quite as unmeaning as this has arisen in connection with the word liberal as applied to religion as applied to politics and society. And he gives the example that um, 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 it, it can refer to a political stance, it can refer to a philosophic position that one takes. He says, the thing is a mere accident of words. In actual modern Europe, a free thinker does not mean a man who thinks for himself. Because there are lots of people who don't want to be tied down to a dogma who believe they're free thinkers and take that position. Um, in actual modern Europe, a free thinker does not mean a man who thinks for himself. It means a man who, having thought for himself, has come up to one particular class of conclusions. One, the material origin of phenomena. We've touched on that tonight. All things begin with matter. Two, the impossibility of miracles, the improbability of personal immortality, and so on. None of these ideas are particularly liberal. Nay, indeed, almost all these ideas are definitely illiberal, as it is the purpose of this chapter to show. So he's going to take these four main currents of thought, monism, pantheism, necessity, and Arianism, and show that even though they present themselves as being liberal, that is, to free themselves from the church, to get out from underneath dogmas, they in fact are illiberal and anti-human. They actually undermine our humanity. So the argument that he's got ahead of them is to show what's wrong with these four positions. Okay. He says that the first thing that's wrong with materialism is that it denies miracles. He says a few pages in, I take the most obvious instance first, the case of miracles. For some extraordinary reason, there's a fixed notion that it's more liberal to disbelieve in miracles than to believe in them. Why, I cannot imagine, nor can anybody tell me. For some inconceivable cause, a broad or liberal clergyman always means a man who wishes at least to diminish the number of miracles. It never means a man who wishes to increase that number. Go down, go down a few lines. It is not because miracles do not happen, as in the dogma which Matthew Arnold recited. These are the great intellectuals at the end of the 19th century. Because lots of people praised other people for ceasing to believe in miracles because they thought people who believe that way belong to an outdated, antiquated world. They weren't educated. They, they didn't abide by the new discoveries of the sciences. A few, um, a few lines along. It is a lifeless verbal prejudice of which the original life and beginning was not in freedom of thought, 
but simply in the dogma of materialism. The man of the 19th century did not disbelieve in the resurrection because his liberal Christianity allowed him to doubt it. He disbelieved in it because his very strict materialism did not allow him to believe in it. And he gives examples of all these people who believed in that. Go down in that paragraph. A miracle only means the liberty of God. You may conscientiously deny either of them, but you cannot call your denial a triumph of the liberal idea. The Catholic Church believed that man and God both had a sort of spiritual freedom. Calvinism took away the freedom from man, because you know that all things were predetermined, predestined. Man was either destined to um, salvation or damnation. And both of them were irresistible. That's, Cal those are, that's Calvin's language. Calvin took away the freedom from man, but he left it to God. Scientific materialism binds the creator himself. It chains up God as an apocalypse chains the devil. It leaves nothing free in the universe. And those who assist this process are called liberal theologians. I remember um, teaching at my first school, which was a Catholic school in California. And the man who was the head, I was shocked. I heard him deliver a paper one day, and I was so shocked at what he said. I asked if we could have lunch, and we talked about it, and it was a rude awakening for me. This was um, a, a, a man who had been a former priest and left the priesthood, but he was the, um, the head of the religious department. He took the position of explaining away all the miracles in the Bible. I was shocked. I was shocked. Um, there had to be some other explanation. Chesterton, in, in this book, if you, in, if you read enough of his essays, you'll find that he's constantly engaging a man, the Bishop of Canterbury, Bishop Singh, was it, or Ng, Bishop Ng, who didn't believe in miracles. He's the Bishop of Canterbury, who didn't believe in miracles. Chesterton was constantly debating, but, I mean, humorously, but debating him. Here, he's, he's trying to make an argument to show what's, what's wrong, He says, this I say is the lightest and most evident case, the assumption that there is something in the doubt of miracles akin to liberal, liberality or reform is literally the opposite of the truth. If a man cannot believe in miracles, there is an end of the matter. He is not particularly liberal, doesn't free him at all, but he is perfectly honorable and logical, which are much better things. It's, I mean, he's, he's saying, you know, to be a good man, an honorable man, you can hold this position and be a good man, but it doesn't make you free. But if he can believe in miracles, he's certainly the more liberal for doing so because they mean, first, the freedom of the soul, and secondly, its control over the tyranny of circumstance. Now stop for a moment. What does he mean by both of those comments? He's saying, if you believe in miracles, um, you're more free for doing so. You're more liberal. Because they mean, first, the freedom of the soul, and secondly, its control over the tyranny of circumstance. Flesh those two things out. Why are you more free for those two reasons? What's he saying? Remember, he's taking the position, most people then were taking the position that the, the beliefs they held were more liberal, more freeing, gave man more freedom. And Chesterton's saying, but they don't. You're less free, and now he's giving his arguments. What are they? First, because they mean the freedom of the soul, and secondly, it's control over the tyranny of circumstances. What does he mean by both of those things? Barbara, go ahead. 
Well, the tyranny of circumstance means that you're not stuck with the way things are because a miracle may free you. Yep, yep. Um, freedom of the soul, I pass. <laughs> Wait, before you pass, I, you're right on in the first one, by the way. He's saying one of the worst things that can happen to any of us is to be a child of our time. To be just strictly a product of whatever's going on around, as if we had no choice. The Catholic Church is the only institution on earth that tries to protect the freedom of a person to keep him from just being a product of his age. Because if you're a product of our age and you've got all these beliefs that I've, materialism, evolution, progress, all of them, you're going to be bound, I mean, you put it perfectly, you're going to be bound by all these things. The last thing you can say about your life is that you're free because all these theories control you, direct you. But um, what's the sec the um, the freedom of the soul? What does he mean by that? Can anybody, Tracy? Can you take a stab at that? Doc, can you? But if he can believe in miracles, he is certainly the more liberal for doing so. That is the more free because they mean first the freedom of the soul. Fred, you wanna you wanna make an effort at this? You can't believe in an immortal oh. soul if you don't believe in miracles. Say it again, Tracy. So maybe you can't believe in a, in a in immortal soul if you can't believe in miracles. Yeah. Maybe that's the freedom. The soul. Yeah. Yeah. Fred, did you have something? Go ahead. Uh, I, I think I think she's she's right i think there's the body and the soul i mean the body has a finite lifespan the soul is immortal so if you if you believe in miracles if you if you believe in the soul that takes you beyond the constraints of the physical world the physical yep. body yep. so you're very much freer than you would have been if you if you're of the mind that once you die you die it's over or or that nothing exists except your body you know that miracles don't exist and things of the spirit don't happen or yeah okay how does that make you because to me you, I would say, you could sit there and say well that just that's a fairy tale that's your imagination if you want to believe in that fine but it's imagine. What's the difference between that and a fairy tale? Good. I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying. No, I'm no. It's a good. It's a good question, yeah, Mark. I, mean, I believe it's so, but. No, no. It's a good question. I, Can he, I think it? you've kind of answered your own question, though, because if you don't believe in miracles, you believe that. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying you can't believe that, but if you do believe that, that's more confining. How is it confining? Exactly. Wait, Fred, Fred, hold on. Take take this up because I, I really like Mark's question. He said, that's like believing in fairy tales because those things don't... I mean, some people are going to say that, so he's taking, he's, he's taking a position lots of people take. How do you answer that position? It's like believing in fairy tales. It, you're, you're living in your imagination. You're not living in the real world. What do you say to that person? It's true. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't argue that. I mean, if you, if you don't believe in 
fairy tales, if you don't believe in miracles, if you don't believe in the eternal soul, then then I'm just saying in that scenario you are more constrained. Yep. I'm not I'm not okay, saying okay. you aren't that, that's where I fall apart. How is someone more constrained then? That's what I was gonna say. don't don't assume that. I don't understand Explain that. how you're more constrained. <laughs> no, Chesterton's just done it. I mean, go ahead. He's just actually, actually I don't know if he did. I, I don't understand why he's saying. Yes, I how to respond to that because I mean, if you basically believe that you you you, you die when the when the body is done, then how how can that not be more constraining than if you believe that there's an e e e eternality out there? Because the eternality is a fairy. Is a fairy. Yeah. Fairy. Yeah. And what? if it's fairy tale, it's not real. Therefore, you can believe it, and that's okay. But it still ain't happening. Yeah. Well, then all and, I'm saying is that you're much more constrained in what you're going to experience than you are if you believe in the fairy tale. Let me come in here if I can, Mark. Wait, give me a, give me a second, can I, to Go see? Because I think it's a really good question. Chester is making the point it, 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 that if all we have is our body then we are constrained to whatever necessities or determinisms inherent in our body, say. So we can't do things other than what we do. Um, there's nothing else. So the, our, our life will terribly shrink in that case, that our choices won't mean as much. At some point you're going to have to go back to these other questions that we're dealing with, the determinism of necessity, the, you know, we're product of forces over which we have no control. I mean, all these things that limit our choices. Um, it seems to me one of the things that you could do, I mean, certainly as somebody in literature, that I would look at a sequence of events and raise questions about whether what happens in a sequence, because we've been dealing with this in literature from the very beginning. If you look at a sequence of events and you're limited by your senses and what your senses give to you, then there's nothing more than those events. But we can say, I mean, there's evidence to show that very often there's a larger meaning to whatever happens in that sequence than we can, that we can demonstrate. We can show that. In which case, there's more going on than our senses allow. So if you're confining yourself to a belief in the, wait, wait, because I, I don't, I, I, I really like your question. If you're confining yourself to that view and saying everything else is just a fairy tale, you can show, because Chesterton did, remember he, he wrote a chapter on fairyland. He showed that very often things that happen in fairyland are more real in the way that people present them than things in reality. So he's argued, he's argued this point a number of times from different perspectives, different ways. It's a much more confining, um, much less human way of looking at our humanity. I don't understand the term confining in this case. Because to me, if you believe in something that doesn't exist, that's more confining than not. Except because it doesn't if you want to believe in that fair you know, fairies and you know, elves in the woods or whatever, okay, but it ain't true. And if you and that's more confining because you're living in fantasy land, you're not living in the real world. Yeah. What's the difference? So you're Mark? confining yourself Wait, with lies. Go ahead. Wait, wait. I, so Mike, I want to, but Suzanne's got, my question would be, because you started by saying if you believe in something that doesn't exist, mm -hmm. you're actually facing the same problem of people who say God doesn't exist and who take that position and who die, deny any evidence that you can 
present to show that. There is rational evidence, rational evidence to show that God does exist. Aristotle showed it, Plato showed it, St. Thomas showed it. They didn't base it on faith, they showed it on evidence. If you can demonstrate that, that there, you, there's evidence for believing in something that your senses can't deliver to you, then there, there may be something to be said for looking at fairy tales to see what they have to show us that can be demonstrated in real life. But hold on, because Suzanne, Duck, you've got a, I want to hear her. She's got a question for you, Mark. So, Mark, mm-hmm. what's the difference between somebody who says, um, I believe in fairy tales, mm-hmm. I believe in the immortal soul, um, and somebody who says, I believe that when you die, that's all there is, period. Which, which that's is... The, well, that's the great mystery. Nobody knows. Wait, wait, wait. Here, listen, but, hear, hear but, a question now. Wait, my, wait. But my question is, if you say, um, if, if you're the person who takes the position that, um, well, if you want to believe in fairy tales, that's okay, but it's not true. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Can't I turn around and say, well, if you want to believe there's nothing after life, that's okay, but it's not true. I mean, there's no, as you said, there's no way... Well, but, I, but we can look at reality, as far as fairy tales and fairies in the woods or whatever, and say, we know that's untrue. Well, Period. but... We're, there's no, there's, there's but, no shadow of doubt. No but, one can argue that that's true. But we're not talking just about fairy tales. Chesterton's talking okay. about a belief in the immortal soul. Correct. And, if you, and believe, you cannot prove or disprove that. Right. And if someone well, wants to wait. believe it, okay. <laughs> wait, if I can jump in. Oh, I, docs, um, Mark, a couple of things. I mean, you, you keep making assertions. I, I mean, there are a number of arguments being presented here, and you keep pushing them off. A couple of things that need to be said here up front. Plato and Aristotle made rational demonstrations, gave rational arguments proving the immortal nature of the soul. Wait, Mark, hold on. Well, you well, I mean, look, to Mark. I mean, you're you're you know, you're criticizing these people who don't well, listen. You're gonna, you're wait, no. tell me Mark, wait, let can I finish, please? Mark, stop. Mark, stop. You're criticizing people who don't listen to arguments and go on and do this, and they and you ought to be looking at yourself right now because arguments are given, not just that are personal or my wanting to impose my will on you. Aristotle, Plato have made arguments proving the immortality of the soul. They're pagans. Hold on. Christ, Christ presented um, arguments in the form of parables. If his, if his disciples met him by saying, we don't believe in parables, make a rational argument, they would not have gotten along. Repeatedly, he, he, most of his arguments were couched in terms of stories or parables. All fairy tales present a truth. Mm-hmm. So for somebody to say fairy tales aren't truth is is just to demonstrate the blindness of a person because every fairy tale, like Christ's parables, are illustrating by way of a story something that's hard for us to see. And let me put this differently. I think most of us get so used to the world that we go to sleep on it. Why did Christ tell most of his... Why did he make most of his arguments in the form of parables? He told stories. He wasn't making rational arguments. He did sometimes. Because most of us go to sleep... We by customs and the, you know, the, the way language makes us go to sleep. Poets, storytellers, Christ, all work through things in a way to, to take something 
and use something that's unfamiliar to us to break in on our world to help us see things because it's hard for us to see them anyway. So for you to say fairy tales aren't true, I mean, just raises all sorts of questions because literally they're not true any more than Christ's parables. But they do show truths that can be demonstrated by looking at the real world. Because what's going on in fairy tales happens to go on in the real world, and very often we don't see it, but it's there. But Mark, if you, if you, may, if you take it back to just a, sim a simpler argument, let's just say that um, you believe in fairy tales and the immortal soul, and I believe there's nothing after death. You're dead, you're dead, you're gone, there's nothing, period. Okay. Okay. So, if, regardless of who's right or wrong, because we can't prove that, we can come up with reasonable arguments, as Robert said, but we can't prove that. So, if, if one belief says you live until you get dead, and that's the end, and the other one says you live until you get dead, and there's lots more after that. Which is the more constricting view? view? Who has the more options? Who has the more... Um, Expanded life, freedom, right. all of it. Well, 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 either one is going to say that they, ha they are the, the non-constricted one. Well, because the one who wants to who believe in the afterlife is going to say, I have, like you said, I have more options. There's more for me later. The person who believes that there is nothing after that is going to say, you're believing in, a, you're believing in nonsense. Yeah, but then you're, but then you're, you're the arguing. restricted by, you know, by but then BS and lies. But then, but then the person who says you're believing in fairy tales is arguing the truth or the not truth. And I'm saying, grant um, say it can't be proven you can't say there's truth or not truth of the two theories which one has, has is more expansive has more to it you can't no, I just, you can't just cross reality. I wouldn't say the person who believes in fairy tales because that's not expansive that's actually delusional no, we're Mark, talking about the immortal soul. Suzanne has yeah. made, what Mark, Suzanne has, has repeatedly said what she's tried to, I, 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 I don't want to go because I, there's problems with it, but what she's done to answer you, to try to answer you, is take away any question about truthfulness. That's, she's made that clear. That's really all that matters. I, I, wait, by the way, I agree, but, but no, you're not, I mean, if you're hearing her argument, I'm not sure that you are, Mark. Yeah, I probably she's tried, not. Yeah, she's, what she did was, was try to take that away and said, there's not a question of truth now because each one of them believes it. Let's get it out of the way. If you take what she's saying is on the surface of the way they're presented, which one is freer? Let me let me jump in here because we've got to go in a, in just a minute. I myself don't want to take out the element of truth right now, and I don't think you do either, Mark. the The only thing that I want to say right now is, insofar as reason can shed a light on either of those, Doc has tried to do it by taking truth out so that you can just take them at face value because if you do you have to say the person who believes in the afterlife has got a, a richer life because there's something there but 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 oh, but I'm, I'm with you if you eliminate that you're, you're in illusory worlds in either case and it doesn't matter when for me it does and I know it does for you here hold on let me just say at this point and then we've got to move on because we're almost out of time 
The point that I want to, that I want to make here is that in our church, in our faith, ours, not the fundamentalist, a large part of the Eastern Orthodox world, the Protestant world, reason is undermined. The role that reason plays in the life of faith is terribly crippled. I want to keep it alive here. And I want to do this. I mean, you're, you're making faces that are showing. I mean, you're not even hearing while you're making an argument. There are arguments that have been made. Aristotle's made them. Plato's made them. St. Thomas, St. Thomas has made them. Not on the basis of faith, on the basis of reason. In, the, in support of demonstrating. Look here, it's not, science is, science is not the only way to prove things. The proofs of science aren't the only proofs. Reason can prove in lots of different ways. Philosophic arguments have been made that demonstrate the immortality of the soul. Plato made them, Aristotle made them, St. Thomas made them, not appealing to faith anywhere. So to the degree that those arguments that are based on faith are credible, that they're believable, so you're setting up against somebody, uh, say a secular, or an agnostic who says, I don't believe in any of this stuff. If you do that and you say, what's at stake here is reason, and I'm saying that because I believe you are, you wouldn't be saying what you're doing. If they're based on reason, you, reason, you have to say, this option um, shows that there's something greater going on in the human being than this option. This one holds out for things that are within our capabilities. This one takes them away. That's the position that Chesterton's taking, and he's giving reasons and evidence to show why. Here he's saying, um, because the freedom of the soul, and I think most of what everybody has been saying here is, is to the point, because if you do believe in the freedom of the soul, and you're not limited just by the body, then there are all sorts of other worlds that suddenly become available to you, that take you beyond a much more constricted view of the materialist who says, no, that's all fantasy, that's all fairy tales. There's empirical evidence, there are rational arguments that you can make in support of that position. No, miracle, no empirical evidence, rational arguments. There's, there's empirical evidence. You, there, you can demonstrate certain things um, that will meet. Um, the scientists scientists will have a hard time because of the, pre the premises they begin with but here let me go on we've got to do one more thing because we're, we're quickly before we leave in the next paragraph he goes on to the second case which is pantheism do you all know what pantheism is because he includes in it a lot of a lot of things he includes um, Buddhism and different kinds of spiritualism um, what is, what, I mean, does just, on a simple definition, what is pantheism? What does pantheism mean? Don't look it up in the dictionary. No idea. What is pan, pantheism, pantheism. Pan is all. Good. Theism. Study of all, belief in all. No, theism. Theistic, the, theism. Oh, God. God. Right. Just everything's the same? Right. Pantheism means that God is in everything. So pantheism is, um, um, does not make a place for a transcendent God. It's an immanent, a form of immanentism. That all things are inner, indwelling. And Shakespeare's taken those, I mean, sorry, Chester has taken those on everywhere. The, the friends or the, um, the uh, Quakers who believe in the inner light, 
Buddhism, immanentism, spiritualism, all those things that turn inward um, leave people in, a, a, once again, a constricted situation. And he repeatedly describes Christ as coming to bring a sword to affirm a transcendent God. His father keeps saying, Son of man has no place to lay his head. He, he uses the image of himself as bringing a sword, a, um, starting a conflagration of fire. He does everything he can to make it clear that man's life is not of this world, that he's on a journey, that he's heading someplace else. And the argument that he makes is what? Why is that important for Chesterton? How does it answer all these forms of immanentism? He says, but I must pass to the larger case of this curious error. The notion that the liberalizing of religion in some way helps the the liberation of the world The second example of it can be found in the question of pantheism, or rather, of a certain modern attitude which is often called immanentism, and which often is Buddhism. But this is so much more difficult a matter, he says, I've got to approach it from another. What's the difficulty here? Why, what what are the difficulties that he points out, this tendency to turn inward? Um, it's, It's one of the characteristics of so many forms of modern spiritualism, that you turn into the spiritualism of yourself and find yourself there and find God there. And Buddhism, he's saying, has a lot of that to it. It's why he singles it out. What's the problem with pantheism and all these various forms of immanentism? Anybody, we've only got... Tracy, go ahead. In my life experience, it's about... um, I, you know, like a person can say, I can make um, any decision and see, say anything and think anything, and it's my inner light, my inner spiritualism, right? So so it's the ultimate, like, form of self-absorption, and the world is about me, and... Right. I get to decide and everything, and it's right. Yeah, yeah. It's actually taking the exalt, the worship of the will, the exaltation of the will, but aggrandizing it, elevating it by giving it a spiritual name. But, I mean, your description of it is pretty much like what we were saying. He says here, um, um, Students of popular science like Mr. Blatchford are always insisting that Christianity and Buddhism are very much alike, especially Buddhism. This is generally believed, and I believe it myself until I read a book giving the reasons for it. The reasons were of two kinds, resemblances that meant nothing because they were common to all humanity. So, you know, the the efforts to, he gives examples of these people who want to reduce Christianity to this feeling so it'll make everybody the same. All religions will be the same. Everybody get along. It's like a religious form of socialism. The reason were of two kinds. Resemblances that meant nothing because they were common to all humanity. And resemblances were never, that were never resemblances, he says. Um, they were actually the reverse. And he goes down the line and he shows how all the things that people use to identify Buddhism um, um, being the same with all those things that identify Christianity and showing that they're couldn't be more different on on the next page to the one where he begins this argument he says um, 
the, the Buddhist temple, the Gothic cathedrals are probably the two most visible signs of what he's talking about. The opposition exists at every point, but perhaps the shortest statement of it is that the Buddhist saint always has his eyes shut, while the Christian saint always has them wide open. The Buddhist saint has a sleek and harmonious body, but his eyes are heavy and sealed with sleep. The medieval saint's body is wasted to its crazy bones, but his eyes are frightfully alive. The Buddhist is looking with a peculiar intent, this inward. The Christian is staring with a frantic intentness outward. If we follow that clue steadily, we shall find some interesting things. Remember, the eternal revolution was that there is this eternal life, transcendent, that we are moving toward, hopefully, if, if, if we're believe in it, that we're doing all we can to realize it. Um, he gives the example of a Mrs. Bassant in the next paragraph. He says, a short time ago, Mrs. Bassant, in an interesting essay, announced then that there was only one religion in the world, that all faiths were only versions or perversions of it. She was quite prepared to say what it was. According to her, this universal church is simply the universal self. So, doctrine, we are all really one person, that there are no real walls of individuality between man and man. If I may put it so, she does not tell us to love our neighbors, she tells us to love us to be our neighbors. That is Mrs. Besant's thoughtful and suggestive description of the religion, in which all men must find themselves in agreement. And I have never heard of any suggestion in my life with which I more violently disagree. I want to love my neighbor not because he's I, but because... He's not I. I want to adore the world not as one looks, likes a looking glass because it's oneself, but as one loves a woman because she's entirely different. If souls are separate, love. If souls are separate, love is possible. If souls are united, love is obviously impossible. A man may be said loosely to love himself, but he can hardly fall in love with himself. I think some men do. Some women do. Or if he does, it must be a monotonous courtship. If the world is full of real selves, they can really be unselfish selves. But upon Mrs. Beeson's principle, the whole cosmos is only one enormous selfish person. Buddhism believes that the root of all sins is individuality, making individual choices, that ultimately we're all destined for this collective amorphous self. We all gather into this one thing. And he's saying that Christianity is distinct as a religion because it's trying to protect human individuality, that we're all made in the image of God, that our choices matter. Good choices are good, they lead us to an ultimate good. Bad choices are bad and put us differently. Um, he, he mentions the Trinity... Um, and um, God, hold on, where is this? And he he introduces it in the context of the same argument that if you take away the Trinity and you've only got one God, then it's easier um, to love oneself, to make oneself the ultimate end of things. That the image of the Trinity that we have is of one God loving another's perfectly indwelling and that the love that we're called to is communal, that it involves another person to get outside of, to love somebody other than ourselves. Um, I'm going to stop here. Um, he talks about um, on the, uh, the, the position of necessity, that things can't be other than they are, and what's detrimental about that. But 
I think I'm going to hold off on that. We've got two more things to deal with, necessity and Arianism. And he argues that any philosophy of necessity, that things can't be different from the way they are, things are just determined or they can't be other than they are, they follow through as a necessity, will always constrict um, our lives. They'll always under, they're, they're something illiberal, inhuman. They take away the importance of choice, um, um, of our minds, of making distinctions, of learning, all the things that matter to us. And Arianism is the belief that Christ was um, fully human, that he, um, that he didn't have, didn't carry into his nature the soul of God. The belief of the Catholic Church is that Christ was fully human, fully divine. His soul was fully human. His soul was fully human, fully divine. And it was absolutely essential that both of those things be held together. Arian departed from it. Almost all, the greater majority of modern beliefs are Arian. They do away with the divinity of Christ. They even explain Christ away because they want to protect everything human. Chesterton saying is to the degree that people do that, they're actually taking away man's nature. They're constricting his nature, making it less than it is. But we'll take those arguments up next week. So next week, what I'd like to do is pick up here and look at the, the rest of his arguments, the one on necessity and the one on Arianism, and then we'll take on the last chapter and finish Chesterton. Any quick comments? Um, any thoughts or responses to any of his arguments or what he's doing um, before we leave? He's identifying most of the isms of our modern world and he's doing it in a wonderful way. He's so respectful of people. He's um, he, he, um, he never makes a criticism without doing it in some kind of charity. He just, he has an amazing ability to, to speak the truth and to not back off of it and somehow to do it kindly, to, you know, to, to still enjoy people, um, lots of whom are not going to agree with him or, you know, or, or be persuaded. But it's not going to stop him from doing his work. Um, what he does is really wonderful. He's, He's speaking for the truth. He's making the truth clear. He's doing it in a spirit of charity. Um, some people will be moved. Other people will not. I mean, that's that's the position of Christ in the world. I mean, Christ experienced the same thing. The amazing thing about Chesterton is he's doing it from the perspective of the world. What he's doing is defending the creed, the Apostles' Creed, but he's doing it from <coughs> position outside the church, from the world. It's a pretty amazing thing he's doing. Any last comments? Okay. Um, you all look so solemn. Um, all of you have a good week. Um, if you would keep Bob um, and the homeless in your prayers and keep Suzanne and me in your prayers, please. And we will keep all of you in our prayers. You all have a good week. Tracy, it was good to see you again. Genuinely good to see you. Um, one more week on Chesterton, and we'll start the Gospel. By the way, I think I said this to you before, if you're starting to read the Gospels. What I'm going to do in the very first class we have when we do the Gospels, 
because I've been reading them in prep. I mean, I've, it's been a long time since I've read through the Gospels, but I've wanted to read them to so I so I'm not tripping all over myself if I because I'm not a I'm not a biblical scholar at all. I'm 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 really winging it here. I'm going to have to wing it with you guys. But I read through. I've been reading through all of the Gospels. I was I can't tell you how shocked I was how different the beginnings of the Gospels were. In our very first class, I'm going to read from the beginnings of each of the four Gospels. And I'm going to ask, what's the difference between them? And how does that difference establish a different kind of authority for what the Gospel writer is presenting? So take a look at the openings to the four Gospels and ask you, what's the perspective and what authority does each of those Gospel writers give to what he's presenting? It's pretty amazing. I'd, I'd not seen it before, but it's an interesting thing to see. So, okay, you guys have a good week. Um, be safe, and we'll see you in a week. Good night, Bye. Bye.